I'm Charlie Hipwood, CEO of Mass Ventures. And I'm Stacy Swider, an investor at Mass Ventures. And we welcome you to the Fundable Founder, where we'll be exploring relevant topics for technology entrepreneurs to help them succeed in raising capital and in growing their businesses. As a founder who started and ran three companies, I didn't know what I didn't know when I first set out. <laughs> but you eventually figured things out, right? For the most part, through trial and error and mentorship. But now as a VC, I'm frequently advising entrepreneurs on the same topics. So Stacy and I are here to share that earned wisdom with you, along with the experts that we interview on a variety of subjects. We are. The roadmap to a successful startup is at your fingertips. So turn up the volume and grab the keys to success for your fundable founder journey. Hi, this is Stacy from Mass Ventures. We're continuing our series on intellectual property with the help of Hamilton Brooks Smith Reynolds, an IP firm here in Massachusetts with offices in Boston and Concord. And part two is about now what? What are the nuts and bolts of filing a patent? And I'm joined today with uh, Deirdre Sanders and Mark Solomon. Deirdre, can you introduce yourself briefly? Uh, certainly, Stacey. Thank you. Uh, as Stacey said, I'm Deirdre Sanders. I practice on the life sciences side of the practice. And I'm a shareholder and principal at Hamilton Brooks Smith & Reynolds. I've been practicing for about uh, 25 years, and I'm a former president of the Boston Patent Law Association. So I enjoy um, doing what I can to serve the community. And Mark, can you introduce yourself? And thank you, Stacey. I'm Mark Solomon. I'm with Hamilton Brooks Smith Reynolds. I'm also a shareholder and principal with the firm. I practice on the engineering side. Deirdre and I meet uh, when it becomes uh, technology involving uh, engineering and life sciences, such as medical devices or bioinformatics. Mm -hmm. And uh, Deirdre and I have been uh, past presidents of the Boston Patent Law Association, which is part of the larger community of intellectual property attorneys here in the uh, in the uh, First Circuit. Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And we're just going to dive into, like I said, the nuts and bolts of, okay, you, you've done your patent strategy. You, you decided you have money to file for it. Your investors really want you to do this. Now what? Uh, what are some typical options for a startup? Should you file a provisional or a patent cooperation treaty? Uh, I can start with that one, uh, Stacey. So once you've made the decision, you're not going to um, keep your invention as a trade secret. You are going and a patent is the correct form of pursuing with your uh, your uh, creative endeavor. You're not going to focus on copyright as your main form or trademark. You decide you have something that is patentable subject matter. Uh, you have a number of choices available to you. You can file in the U.S. what's called a provisional application, which is an application that you have a year uh, to convert into your regular application. And over the course of that year, uh, it will be kept confidential. You'll have time to get additional funding to pay for the very expensive costs of patenting. And um, you have a year before any examination starts. Uh, and those are, I know from personal experience, so helpful when you're waiting mm -hmm. for some matching funds to come in or some, some venture investment or seed investment. Um, those are very helpful. It buys you a year of time. Yes, yes, yes. And you have some protection as you go into your meetings that you're, you you have uh, some protection that, you know, your invention is safe, that you've been covered by your application, and you do have a year before you have to start paying costs. But you have to do them correctly, right, so that you can actually file the appropriate patent later, because if you forget something in the provisional, you can't redo it, right? 
you, you can't redo it, but you can file a second provisional within the course of the year, a third one, and add more information. Uh -huh. And as yeah, yep. So uh, as long as you have filed your um, converted utility application within the course of the year, uh, you're you're good to go. Uh, so that's one option. Another option is you know exactly how your invention should be. It's ready for patenting, meaning uh, you know you have all the information that you need you're, as far as uh, in, enabling a person who reads your application to know how to make and use it. You have enough written description. You know what is the desirable candidate or version of your invention. You're good to go. You may want to go straight for a utility application. Much bigger expenses up, up front, but you're also going to get your patent sooner. And wow. that would be in the U.S., or you might want to, um, you can also foreign file, you know, very soon. You may want to file a patent cooperation treaty application as your first application, which will allow international, one international application as your initial filing. You can get some um, information uh, as far as search and examination and go straight from there. And you can mm -hmm. even file U.S. and then go into other countries separately, go into France, et cetera. So um, these are a lot of you features. can just do like the whole enchilada with the PCT mm -hmm. or you mm -hmm. can just start with the U.S. utility mm -hmm. and then keep going out from there. And that is that a question of strategy or cost or it's both, uh, you know, most people start don't start with a PCT application if their first application will start up. You could. You don't mm -hmm. have to uh, because they would like to save the initial money, maybe file that provisional, have a year to keep doing the research, keep marketing research and technical research or, and getting funding and, and having that year. Um, or as long as you file your PCT application within a year of your first application, you can still file your PCT application. And before they want to start those big international costs starting to run, they often start U.S. But certain strategies you, uh, make sense. You can go straight international as your very first application. You, uh, the PCT stands for Patent Cooperation Treaty, which is kind of nice. It's a cooperation, a treaty of cooperation between many countries, not every country in the world, but pretty much every country that people want patents. Not every country, but pretty much. Um, where they've decided you can get this initial examination internet by in an international uh, searching authority, examination authority, and then go to your other countries. So that's a strategy some people do. It just typically you'll go provisional U.S. And we have had some advanced uh, strategies, even with individuals and startups, where these clients would want to have a prioritized examination in the U.S. to will file a non-provisional application go through the prosecution within one year because of that prioritized examination, learn about the art that might be difficult to overcome, learn if there are any uh, inadequacies in the application, some uh, subject matter that may have to be added or some cleanup of language to effectively get the claims in as good a position as possible. And even within that one year, possibly getting an allowance in the US. Then once you know that, you file an international application or direct foreign countries, with a higher likelihood of success, because as Deirdre mentioned, it is expensive. So you really want to have the best likelihood of success. So it's a little bit more cost upfront for the U.S. examination, but the overall cost, you know, throughout the, the international filing could be contained even more. You may also find out that you are not the first. You don't have novelty and decide to discontinue that process altogether and instead wait until you have the next evolutionary uh, development in your product before ex you know, spending that kind of money in internationally. I love that. That's a, that's a nice, um, I like that method. Just, just wait in the waters, sort out the claims. And we've used it very successfully. So yeah. So what's involved in the filing process? You've gone into a little bit, I guess, but some approaches to filing, but what are some of the nuts and bolts? 
So, so let's go all the way back to the start. You've identified that you have overcome a technical or scientific problem. So you've solved the problem. You said you call up your patent counsel. You say, I really want to discuss this with you. So one of the first steps is to have an invention disclosure meeting. During that process, we'll take about five minutes just to ask some basic procedural questions, such as, has there been a prior public disclosure? Is there an upcoming public disclosure? Either of those may affect your timing for filing or whether you can file at all. Those are some of the very basic questions that we'll want to know. It may also abridge what countries will let you file because the U.S. has a one-year grace period. Other countries such as Europe and China don't have any grace period. They have a, an absolute bar of novelty. That includes mm. yourself. The next thing is who are the inventors and to whom do the inventors have an obligation to assign rights? If the company doesn't have the right, the uh, company will decide not to go forward. Uh, if there is a divided, uh, well, a split inventorship, that you may actually have multiple applicants to the same uh, patent application, eventually mm -hmm. patent, mm -hmm. in which case you may need a separate agreement to figure out terms of this co-ownership aspect. Mm -hmm. uh, then we'll figure out, is there any prior art, right, that we should be aware of to discuss. Then we move on to the substantive portion of the process, which is four questions, generally. We're going to say, okay, what is the problem you're trying to solve? How have others solved it, if you're aware? How have you solved the problem? And what are the advantages because of your solution? Just four questions. At the end of two to two and a half hours, we will have heard everything about it. And hopefully before the end, define the invention in language. And we look and see what that, it, it's a simple sentence that says, I claim, we claim the following invention. And there are going to be a lot of elements in the claims all coupled together in a very organized fashion that says, here is how we distinguish over the art. Here's why we're novel, and here is why we are non-obvious. And a lot of the questions during the process is the why. Why is it non-obvious? You could imagine that mechanical devices, boy, if everyone put together me me mechanism, mechanical things, all for a long period of time. But usually there's one structural element that's different. And it's the why. Why is it there? Why does it make it different? How does it have some sort of technical advantages over the art when it comes to uh, optics or signal processing or electronic software networking, uh, control systems, anything of that nature, and, and biology and chemistry, organic chemistry, small molecules. There's always the question of why. Why do those elements arranged in their way distinguish over the art? And why did others not? You know, why would it not have been obvious? And so right. these are the types of questions we'll go over within that first um, first introductory or, or invention disclosure meeting. And that really sets the strategy all the way from the U.S. filing, could be provisional and non-provisional, all the way through the international prosecution and with the goal of getting allowed subject matter with broad scope and distinguishing over the art and also building up, building in many fallback positions. Excellent. And on the life sciences side, the process is very similar. Um, primarily, a lot of times, some research has been done. There may be a manuscript, uh, and that is the time point where people uh, come to us and say, we have this manuscript or we have a presentation. Here's a slide deck uh, showing the basics of the research. You know, person with a drug did better than person, you know, group with a drug did better than person or group without the drug. It, uh, uh, 
And they come to us and say, we'd like to get this patent application on file. And a lot of times the initial research has been done uh, and we take that and we try to expand and shrink the size of the invention based on the questions that we um, uh, ask through these initial uh, invention disclosures. How else could it be done? What other diseases could be done? How else could the chemical be prepared? How else could the drug be done? And we ask these questions not only to get a sense of what is truly the patentable subject matter, but to make sure, particularly in the life sciences side, where it can be extra tricky, that we have sufficient um, discussion in the application that a person of ordinary skill could make and use the invasion and convention, being able to do so, and that there's sufficient description that it's clear that we have all that positions. Yeah, this is great. I, I, I'm getting the sense of what it's like to sit down, you know, with you and and how your process for working with the inventors and eliciting basically the claims and, and whether it is um, whether you pass the, the ordinary skill test and, and things like that, which is a tough, the novelty, the ordinary skill test. Very interesting. So a firm goes through all this, they, they figure out their claims, they sit with you, it's a back and forth, they might file the US first. How does a startup consider a foreign filing strategy? Well, it's important to always remember that your patent should be serving your business goals. Uh, that's something I always uh, emphasize with everyone. Don't just right. They're expensive. So don't do very more than you have to, or less yeah. than you have to. It's tricky. Right. Exactly, because your provisional application is is the cost of basically filing the application for the most part. Then your non-utility or your, your utility also non-provisional. That's when you're having all your conversations back and forth and arguments with the patent office uh, to get your patent. And then with foreign. Now you have to work with foreign attorneys and, you know, the client would come to us as U.S. attorneys and we, we have relationships with foreign counsel all over the world, uh, but you're working with your European attorney and your Japanese attorney and your Chinese attorney to file the application in those countries and then you have translation costs as well. And some countries have annual costs as well, so it's the cost really expands. So you really have to think about what makes sense. There's a number of questions as you're trying to decide what success with your strategy to consider. Where are you going to make your your if it's a your your widget or where where will it be used? Because remember, patents can be on an, a thing like a device or a compound, and it can also be on a, a way of making or using the thing. Uh, so those are called like method claims. So you decide first where are you going to make it. Second, is it patentable subject matter in that country? Uh, on the license side, there's a number of countries that don't permit method of treatment claims. So if your entire invention is administering a drug in a particular way, uh, in a particular combination at a particular time, time that's not necessarily applicable subject matter in the countries that may be interested. Mm -hmm. Then you decide where's your competitor making it. And you, should, you could also consider where would you sell it? Consider where you, would your competitor sell it? Where might there be a big port? Where that might be a, a factor? Uh, where are you likely to enforce it? This is a big one. Sometimes uh, uh, an applicant may want to go into a country, enter it, get a patent, and they're never really going to enforce it there. They're never going to, you know, hire a lawyer there and sue somebody, investigate and sue somebody in that country. Maybe they will, but that's a factor too. So you have to consider where it makes sense. Uh, a number of, sometimes the clients will have lists of the most important inventions where they will enter many countries. And their less important countries, uh, inventions, they're still kind of important, but they may just enter the US, Europe, Canada, Australia, places that are in the English language, and then other inventions, which they're less sure about the marketability, they may just enter US and just go with US. But you also have to consider not just what's interesting to you, but if you're if part of your business plan is to get acquired or to license your invention, you have to consider what 
those entities, the acquirers and investors, may want to see what you've got in protection. Oh, wow. So yeah. It's a, big, it's a big, big business and, and legal calculus. And it is leverage. So one could imagine that, as Dan was mentioning, uh, enforcement in, in certain countries, software can be difficult to determine that it actually exists. There are many forms. It could just be executable code, ones and zeros. So it may be hard to, to determine that. But I have counsel clients say, well, if you're going to have difficulty because there aren't the same discovery rules in other countries as there are in the U.S., have the U.S. patent so that you could you could start a suit here, determine what's inside somebody else's uh, system, and then you use that information in these other countries. But you have to get at the information. Other things that like mechanical, uh, various other technologies that are really uh, very clear, that that's less of a, a difficulty in determining whether or not there's infringement. I might also say that even during the invention disclosure process, we may make a, a determination that there is a combination of forms of intellectual property. So you may have, for example, I use mechanical, very simple, but mechanical also has ornamental features. So if there's that type of thing, there's ornamental features for one portion and functional features for another portion, you could actually get a blend of, you could go after both types of patent protection, utility patent for the functional features or the useful features and ornamental or design patent for the ornamental features. And a lot of considerations. <laughs> there are, and, and, and you may then say, well, could copyright help? Uh, how about trademarks, right? We have yeah. one client very successful was allowed to sit across from large pharma only because of the issued patents. And, and in the end, she said, you know what's actually more important for the business now is because once you once you cross that threshold, you gain some market traction. What might become more important is market expansion, which may fall in that that's your trademark, right? Brand recognition, brand loyalty. So there's a nice combination you could think of. And that goes all the way back to the beginning where we say, what are your business goals? What are your markets? And let's discuss what is your potential intellectual property. Yeah, I'm a big fan of trademarks. They're actually pretty inexpensive and they can be quite effective and super important in the long run for marketing. If you've got a nice logo or design, it's just super important. And it's actually a way that people can um, stab you in the back. If they, if you've not trademarked, um, they will they will just try to torpedo you by more or less taking your name or your, your domain name, your, you know, but moving on. Um, okay. So once an application is filed, um, what can a company expect in terms of timing? So they've done this analysis there. They're, they've made their decision about the approach. What's the timing like? Okay, so uh, you follow the application. Let's call it, let's stay with utility applications. So that one, you follow an application, let's say non-provisional. So that's when the patent office is going to start an examination process. With a request for a prioritized examination, you may hear that the first examination report in the US, we refer to them as office action, within two, three, four months. If, if you don't file the request for prioritized examination, six, nine months is, is fairly typical. Mm -hmm. And at that point, the patent office will raise maybe some objections, the uh, informalities, and may raise prior art. That's the novelty and non-obviousness rejection saying, well, I read your claims, I understand the examiner will say, I understand the elements and the combination, the arrangements of those elements. Here's a piece of prior art, or should I say a document, and it could be a patent document, could be non-patent literature. The examiner says that seems to have your elements in the same arrangement. Therefore, you lack novelty. 
Let's yeah, see. these can be head scratchers, though. Sometimes you're just like, why do you see that? Is anything it, close it, to what it, I'm it, doing? It come <laughs> yeah, the, the even more challenges. That was an example of combining references to form and non-obviousness rejection. Yeah. And, and yeah. that actually, believe it or not, what is said in response to the examiner's point can be just as important as what was written in the application in the first place. Words matter in this field of-, of For of sure, it matters a ton at that mm -hmm. stage. That is, a, I agree from what I recall of going through it. That is a very important step. Because mm -hmm. you're kind of arguing with the examiner, basically. You're, you're arguing- Educating them. You're, <laughs> and you're educating, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Deirdre. <laughs> right, and, and we refer to the words that are, are sent back as prosecution history estoppel meaning a defendant, or, or even if it, you don't get into a litigation, but it's a negotiating position, the person on the other side of the table can say, I see you made those arguments, therefore, your claim has is limited. It's not as broad a scope. Therefore, we are not infringement, infringing, so we are not going to pay royalties. Or in the case of, a, of maybe an investment, the investor says, well, you know, we're not going to pay a premium because we don't believe that the patent is as strong because of the arguments made during prosecution or could even just be the words in the claim. So it, it comes down to, in, in the world of patents, that this is leverage in a negotiation in, in many, many cases. Mm. Any closing thoughts about timing? File um... uh, early, file <laughs> early. Uh, one way, uh, another part about timing is if you're at the very beginning of uh, a creation of a product, we often recommend file a, a, a good provisional application, and then as the year continues and your product gets ready for marketing, you can file subsequent uh, provisional applications throughout the year, scoop them all up into a non-provisional application, or even at the time of the non-provisional, add subject matter, realizing that the new subject matter would only get a priority date as of the new filing, but the provisional application would have priority date for all of the, the, the subject matter of the original filing. And once so you file are, that that official patent, it takes like there's this back and forth and mm -hmm. it takes at least a year, right? It, it actually, yeah, it, it can under prioritized examination. I've gotten it out within 10 months, uh, an issued patent. And But the usual course, when you're not in a, a, a hurry, generally approximately three, 3.1 years, I think is the last time I looked at the patent. Office. Three years. Wow. <laughs> So the, again, that's good advice to start early because you prime the pump and then because it, all the discovery work that goes ahead of that, at least you can start getting that out of the way. And so that when you're filing and then I guess file for prioritization, if, if you can. Yeah, well, well, if it makes sense for your strategy. Right. I mean, sometimes it makes sense not, not. To Is it just more expensive to priority to file for prioritization to speed it up? Is it just a cost thing? Uh, not necessarily. It could be a, you know, when will you be ready to, you know, market this? When do you want this to all start? Uh, a lot of people also file what's called a continuation application. Um, once uh, the uh, case starts to get close to allowance, you're going to file on any time your patent pending, just to keep something out there alive. Uh, an application with the earliest priority date that you can claim is a lot of value to that, too, to give you flexibility as you're you grow it and decide what are the claims that are most valuable to you. Right. So keep things, I mean, my, my, my bottom line is as flexible as possible. By filing early, you, you, you're you flexible in terms of uh, avoiding anticipation and obviousness by adding a lot of fallback positions in your thinking and your claims. That allows for a lot of positions so that you can have a certain amount of 
um, ability to bounce with where your business is going and where the market's going. Yeah. And we do recommend the clients to keep trying to innovate over even your own designs. Mm -hmm. Keep innovating because it, if you if you have that you have problem more patent applications, you can actually build up a, a very nice portfolio for yourself and really keep the competition out. Try to uh, you know advance over your own designs because there are always risks when you know, you, you file for, for one application and then the, the meaning of patenting means to lay open to expose all your technology to the public. That gives others ideas and they may advance over you and grab uh, more of a hold of the market. So advancing, improving features of a product, capturing patent you know, protection when it makes sense uh, to do so. And uh, so a nice strategy can be built. But again, uh, talking to professionals who understand and you know can distinguish even over your own work would make sense. Uh, but again, remember this is to support all the intellectual property patents, especially there to support a business, support product, not to be the product. So you really want to keep ahead and gain market share uh, from the use of, of any of the forms of intellectual property. Well, you guys certainly know your stuff. Um, I think we need to stop there for now. Um, our next session for those who want to join in this in this class is around IP enforcement. So I welcome you to all join that. A big thank you to Mark and Deirdre, and we'll see you all for part three. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Fundable Founder. Please go to our website at mass-ventures.com for more information on Mass Ventures and where you can also find other episodes just like this.